Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Well, folks, here we are. Former President Donald Trump appears on the brink of being indicted by a Manhattan grand jury. To discuss the likely charges and what comes next, I'm joined by three of my close friends, fellow legal experts, and CAFE colleagues. They are my CAFE Insider co-host, Joyce Vance, who served as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, Ellie Honig, the former head of organized crime at SDNY and host of CAFE's Up Against the Mob podcast, and Barb McQuaid, who served as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and writes notes from Barb to the CAFE community. Welcome, folks. We are recording this in the 1 p.m. Eastern Time Hour on Wednesday, March 22nd. And at the beginning of the week, there was a lot of speculation that we would have an indictment uh, from the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, against Donald Trump in connection with the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels by now. And we understood that the grand jury was going to be meeting this afternoon, perhaps to vote on a proposed indictment from the DA's office. And just as we were entering our respective uh, podcast studios, such as, such as they are, we got some reporting confirmed by more than one outlet that the grand jury has been called off today. My first question is, does anybody have any uh, conjecture as to why that is so? And then I want to ask quickly for everybody to opine on whether or not you are still positive there will be an indictment, as we've been led to believe there would be, against Donald Trump. Let me start with Joyce. So I think it's important to keep the context in mind. We know that leaks are very, very unlikely to come from the Manhattan DA's office because grand jury proceedings, including schedules, are secret. That means that the likely source of this news is a witness or or perhaps even a grand juror, although Um, that's certainly not something anyone would hope would be the case here. So I say that to say it's very difficult to know what this means. Is there a new witness that needs to come in? Are prosecutors considering additional defendants or additional charges? Or does this mean that there's some fatal flaw that they now perceive in their case um, so that it so may not So you're going to leave every, every option open. You're not going to make Absolutely. any conclusion. I an, <laughs> I'm an every option kind of girl on this one. Okay, Barb, can you take a position on this? <laughs> I'll, I'll speculate. I'm willing to speculate. Yeah. Um, I've had cases where you thought you were all ready to go. You plan to indict the case and things come up. It may be a supervisor said, I want to review it one more time. I want to research the elements one more time. 
Um, you know, at DOJ, we have that much larger chain of command that reaches to Washington that could slow things down. Here in New York, maybe less so. Um, a witness issue. Sometimes it's a quorum issue. They weren't going to have enough members of the grand jury to indict. You have to have a quorum before they can do business. And maybe that's the case. So there are all kinds of things short of the merits of the case itself that can cause a delay like this. The only reason we're expecting this is because it's been so public. Ordinarily, all of this stuff is done off stage. Nobody has any idea when it's coming. It's just one day it appears and it's filed. And nobody saw any of this stuff of maybe it's today, maybe it's the next day. So I think there are a lot of ordinary business reasons that can cause a delay. Um, you know, it may be that they, they don't want to have them in court tomorrow because there's some other big case that's happening in court tomorrow. And the security has said, do you mind pushing this off to next week? I mean, there's just so many different reasons. But I do still think an indictment's coming. I think that uh, based on the fact that they did not call Michael Cohen in rebuttal of Robert Costello on Monday suggests to me that he didn't do significant damage to the prosecutor's case. We're going to come back to him in a moment. I want to go through with the group. Ellie, if you have something to add on the fact of the cancellation of the grand jury, feel free. But before you do that, I want everyone further to what Barb just said, and I know we're just speculating, of what you think the likelihood is that we'll see some sort of indictment from the Manhattan DA's office against Trump. I'll go first. I'm going to say 93.4%. Ellie? <laughs> I'm going to take the over, but not by... It's funny, because I was thinking about a number before you even gave one, and I was thinking... <laughs> I was going to say high 90s, so I guess that comes in above 93. Not 100, though, importantly. And just so people understand, there's two ways that that can happen. There's really two big decision points here. First, Alvin Bragg has to decide he wants to seek an indictment. The way it works is you put your evidence in and sometimes you abandon a case without seeking an indictment. That's really almost entirely up to the prosecutor in his discretion. It's hard for me to foresee a scenario where Alvin would sort of lead people along this far and then bail out. Uh, and then the second possibility, very remote, is that the grand jury votes what we call a no bill, meaning they don't even vote by the 12 grand jurors, the, the majority requirement by the low probable cause standard, that happens very, very rarely. I mean, especially in the federal system, unless you don't really want an indictment, in which case you can sort of signal that to the grand jury. But yeah, I'm, I'm high 90s right well, now. Well, that's the allegation that some people make in cop shooting cases where the right. DA reluctantly goes to the grand jury, says we presented the evidence dispassionately yep. and there's no true bill. And it's, well, we've done our duty and we're, and we're done. I, I don't get the sense here just looking at this from the outside, that there's any gamesmanship here about looking like you're seeking an indictment. That's not a good look for the Manhattan DA. It's not a good look for anybody. So I don't think that's what's going on. Right. I want to ask one more thing before we get to the to the substance of what will likely come to pass. But first, I need Barb and Joyce to give their percentages. What do you think, Barb? Um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to disagree with in the 90s. Uh, what was yeah. the priest number was 93.4? 93.4. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go 95, uh, just to go a little ever ever slightly above. I think it would take an awful lot at this point to to pull it back. I want to know what the point four is from, priest. It's just to be difficult. It's an algorithm. It's complicated. You know, I, I think something that you guys have just touched on that I've really wondered about here, I know it doesn't seem consistent with how hard this office has charged, but it is worth pointing out that sometimes in a tough case where prosecutors come to realize um, that there are important reasons to prosecute, but also maybe a serious impediment to the case, it can be easier to let the, the grand jury make that call. But like y'all, I don't think that that's what's going on here. And I, I think the odds that we'll see an indictment are maybe even a little bit higher. I'd, I'd be willing to go as high as 97 or 98 percent. 
I want to take something off the table or, or ask you if we should take it off the table. We have been led to believe, based on lots of considerations, including leaks, and who has gone into the grand jury, Michael Cohen, Stormy Daniels has met with prosecutors in the DA's office. So we have been led to believe, and it is my belief, that if there's an indictment against Donald Trump in this matter, it will relate to the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and also Ms. McDougal. I've heard some people in the last couple of days, including somebody, I can't remember who it was on television today, suggest, you know, we may be in for a surprise and we may not only get charges relating to the hush money payment, but also maybe relating to the undervaluing and overvaluing of assets that I have understood to have been part of the investigation that Alvin Bragg also oversaw that kind of stalled and caused Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn to resign a year ago with a lot of fanfare. That's a separate investigation. Does anybody have a view on whether or not you think we could actually see an indictment with respect to that other investigation that we have been led to believe was stalled? Wow. I'll take a crack at that. that Look, of course, we certainly may be in for a surprise. If this was it, I would be stunned uh, because this is, of course, the subject of a civil lawsuit that the attorney general, the state attorney general, Letitia James, has brought. Um, But famously, about a year ago now, the reporting was Alvin Bragg was not ready to pull the trigger on this, which caused Mark Pomerantz to quit. And, you know, you know my thoughts on that. I I, I am very dubious of Mark Pomerantz's credibility and and motives there. I've written about that for CAFE. Um, But let's just play this out. If you've made the decision as Alvin Bragg, I'm going to cast my lot with Michael Cohen. I'm aware of his baggage, but I feel confident I can corroborate him and present him to a jury. Um, You kind of have to make that decision if you're going to charge the hush money payments piece of the case. Um, Perhaps it then follows that you have enough to charge the other case. So so I, I I will, again, hedge and say anything can happen. This one would surprise me, but but I wouldn't say it's impossible. You know, last we checked, Alan Weisselberg was still sitting in prison, Trump's um, CFO. Whether or not he is cooperating more robustly than he cooperated uh, in the case involving the Trump organization, I think is an interesting question. We just don't know the answer to that one. But uh, as Ellie says, I wouldn't be surprised by anything at this point. Yeah, sure. I think uh, it's it's quite possible that we could see that. Uh, it's been a year. You think it's quite possible, even though there was all this controversy and all this pushback on the part of Alvin Bragg with respect to Mark Pomerantz's book, that suddenly we're back in that game as well? I think you just don't know. You know, th- things get reported. Things yeah. get reported by those who are willing to leak. And there are other people who are not so willing to leak. So I don't think we can ever know what's going on behind closed doors. And, you know, there were some pretty good bits of evidence in all of that. We saw some of it in the civil lawsuit filed by Attorney General Letitia James about, you know, uh, over over uh, estimating the square footage of Trump's uh, apartment in Trump Tower by, you know, a factor of 10. Some pretty black and white blatant lies there. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of that resurrected. I think it's a possibility. Barb, while you're speaking, I'm going to ask you to do the honors of describing briefly And then we'll discuss the merits and the seriousness and the challenges and the defenses, because I think that's what is important here on the substance. Could you describe very briefly, if we're right, that these charges will relate to the hush money payments, what those charges will be and whether it will be a misdemeanor or a felony, and then we'll take it apart. There's a a New York law that makes it a crime to uh, falsify business records. So to say you're expending money on one thing and actually spending it on another is a misdemeanor offense. That offense can become a felony 
if the purpose of the falsification of the business records is to conceal another crime. Or to further another crime. Correct. So in this instance, I think the theory that people have been operating under, and it's really based on the factual basis that Michael Cohen gave in his federal case where he pled guilty, was all about the payment of hush money, that uh, there was a, a desire to pay money to Stormy Daniels to prevent her from sharing a story about an extramarital affair. And it isn't about the payment of the hush money. And I think there's some either confusion or deliberate uh, distraction about this, that it's all about you know the payment by a victim of hush money. It's about falsifying the nature of that payment. And so based on what Michael Cohen had to say in his guilty plea, he made the payment on, on his own. And then Donald Trump reimbursed him over a series of months by writing checks and claiming that those checks were legal fees. So that, that's the falsification. So there's that's a payment the made. It's presented on the books of the company as legal fees, legal retainer. And in fact, it was to keep someone's mouth shut. And then further, and we'll get to this, it may have been an unreported campaign contribution if you can prove that the reason for the hush money payment was connected to the election. The payment was made on the eve of the election. Certainly, he had a lot to gain by keeping Stormy Daniels quiet on the eve of the election when people were chattering about this. Can I ask the other folks, Ellie and Joyce, about a criticism that will have been made? You know, Barr points out, and then we'll talk about the defenses of the charge if it comes. As Barr points out, someone has gone to prison uh, relating to the facts that are at the, at the heart of this matter with respect to Donald Trump. And his name is Michael Cohen, and he got sentenced to three years. He didn't do three years, but he got sentenced to three years. So clearly, it was felt that this was a serious crime. Michael Cohen would have been the less culpable if there's enough proof against the principal, and the principal here is individual one, Donald Trump. That case was brought by the Southern District of New York, my old office, Ellie's old office. If the Southern District of New York passed on this case, what does that say to people about the propriety of Alvin Bragg as the local DA bringing a case against Trump? Is that a fair concern for people to have? So I'll take a stab at that. I think it says absolutely nothing. Two different offices with different prosecutive um, priorities, with different statutory authority. And, and what makes this one even more difficult, you know, in the normal course of business, there might be some force to this argument, even if technically the two offices were distinct. Here we know that there was an effort by the former attorney general, Bill Barr, to tamp down on any additional investigation into Trump. And that ate up a good bit of time. We don't know, quite frankly, why Merrick Garland's Justice Department didn't pick the case back up. What, was there a technical problem in the case? Were they concerned, for instance, about Cohen's credibility? Maybe Alvin Bragg has a new witness that corroborates everything and makes the case much stronger. That's doubtful to me. Well, I'm just saying there are, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that we just don't know. I just think it's it's very difficult not knowing what their evidence is to evaluate their case, right? So um, there just could be a lot of stuff going on that we don't know about, either good or bad for the case. Ultimately, though, this is a different charge that Bragg is considering bringing from the campaign finance charges against Cohen in the federal system. So long as his evidence is solid and this is consistent with the way that this statute is used for other people, I think it's well within his prosecutorial discretion to go ahead. Can I can I uh, say something that I never thought I would say? And yeah. I'm going to say it on tape. 
you cannot blame this one on Bill Barr. I'm sorry. And we know I wrote my whole first book about Bill Barr. What? This is not everything on Bill Barr. What have you done to the Ellie Honig we know and love? (laughs) The the SDNY's decision not to charge Donald Trump was completely independent of Bill Barr. It was made after Bill Barr was gone. I report in my book, my second book, Untouchable, that the SDNY had a series of internal meetings uh, when they considered just this question in 2021 when Trump was leaving office. And they decided on their own not to charge Donald Trump. Now, their reasoning is is kind of interesting. They felt that the evidence in the case was, there was a little bit of, of difference of opinion, which as you all know, happens on the team. Some thought the evidence was borderline. Others thought it was better than borderline. No one thought it was a slam dunk. But they took into account a lot of what we might call, I guess, the soft factors or the discretionary factors and basically concluded it's not worth bringing the first ever charge, which will be certainly politically charged, like it or not, against the former president on this evidence for this crime. Of course, technically, it, it's a separate office here. It's a separate sovereign. And and Alvin Bragg has the right to make his own decision. I, I don't necessarily agree with the substance of that decision. The other thing I just want to say, and Preet, I think we're just getting this. I think this is a a shaky charge if it is as we currently know it from Alvin Bragg, and we'll talk about that. But I do think it's within the fairly broad band of prosecutorial discretion. I don't think it's an abuse of power. I have questions about the merits, though. Ellie, I just want to push back on one thing gently here, which is I, I, I agree with you. And by the way, I loved both of your books, this point about when the charging decision is made. But Bill Barr tamps down on additional investigation sort of in the moment at that key point in time. I think that that fairly does influence what happens afterwards. So for what it's worth. So I think on this point, I understand what everyone is saying, but it would be different if the Southern District of New York decided not to bring any case against Michael Cohen or anyone else based on this nucleus of facts, the hush money payment. And you have a different prosecutor with a different threshold and different discretionary thinking, um, different laws. Um, Arguably, by the way, you could say that the the federal case has a more appropriate law. And even though it's the case that the state has a different law, falsification of business records that can be elevated into a felony, maybe it's more ill-fitting than the federal law. But that's not what happened here. The Southern District made a decision to do something not as extraordinary as indicting a sitting or former president, but indicting the former lawyer to, to, the, to the sitting president while the guy was president, which is a big deal, and it would be a big deal. And they clearly, in connection with that, were thinking about the ultimate target. And we don't know why. Ellie has some reporting. We don't 100% know why. They stepped away from that. But I think it does raise interesting questions. So I, I don't come down the way Joyce does in saying that, you know, there's no connection at all and they're totally, wholly different. By the way, Alvin Bragg, you know, I should note once again, is a friend of mine, used to work for me in the U.S. Attorney's Office and I supported his election. So he is a an alum, to the extent this is relevant, of the Southern District of New York and is familiar with the ways that the Southern District thinks about cases and does cases. But it, it's, it's sort of interesting. I want to go back to what Ellie said a second ago about um, the, the level of seriousness of the case. And I think separate from the legal issues here, Alvin Bragg will will need to make the case publicly that this is a serious matter and a serious case. And and one step in that direction is to reiterate what I just said. You know, it was serious enough that a federal U.S. attorney's office did an investigation and sent a man to prison who is less culpable than the person that we're indicting here. I know what Ellie's view is about the seriousness of the case, if it's ticky-tack or not. Joyce and Barb 
Is this serious conduct? Is this the kind of conduct that merits a charge of a former president of the United States? Because that's a question I'm getting a lot of from people who are no allies of Donald Trump. I think this is a serious crime, Preet, and I think it's one that I would charge. Um, and I, I think the reason is, number one, uh, we have seen that in New York, this charge of falsifying business records is one that is done with some frequency. So it isn't like, uh, wow, we had to really scour the, the code book to come up with this one. And this is a crime. It's a serious crime, and it's charged frequently. Um, the amount of the, the fraudulent entry is something like $130,000. You know, that's that's not chump change. That's a lot of money. But I also think you have to look at the context. You know, I think sometimes people get distracted by the involvement of sex. That's uh, Ellie. That's Ellie, certainly. <laughs> oh my goodness! I know you're thinking about Ellie. I just want to put that on the on the record. You know, well, you know, morality police. That's the first. I'm thing focused on the of. paperwork. Um, you know, I, I I can remember other cases I've had where you want to avoid these allegations that you're only going after this person because of this sensational allegation of some sort of sexual misconduct. Um, and in some ways, I'm sure he would wish that away if he could find just some clean business reason to charge him. But this is is an important matter because you have to think about the timing of this. Um, this hush money was paid, allegedly, according to the sworn plea agreement of Michael Cohen, on the eve of the 2016 election, right as that Access Hollywood tape is coming out. And so not only was this a false business record and perhaps an illegal campaign contribution, but it might even have swayed the outcome of the 2016 election. I mean, but for this payment, we might not have ever had a President Trump. And so I think it's a very consequential crime. And for that reason, I think it is one that I would charge. And because it gets charged against a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, I think that there's nothing singling out Donald Trump by charging him with this. There's no selective prosecution at work here. In fact, what he really wants is to, to get special treatment by having Bragg decline the prosecution. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, and I'll, I'll let Joyce answer also, in some ways, it would be selective non-prosecution, one could argue, if Trump wasn't charged. Because you have, as I keep repeating, someone has gone to prison for this conduct. A less culpable person has gone to prison. In what circumstances is it fair or just for the less culpable person to go to prison and the more culpable person who is directing the misconduct and the scheme not to go to prison? And by the way, a further point in, in, the, in favor of Barb's argument supporting the seriousness of the charge, and I wonder what people think of this, is it's not something that, that happened on one day and then was over. The scheme to make the repayment that is part of the, you know, the potential charge of falsification of business records was the reimbursement of Michael Cohen over the course of months by Donald Trump, by check, in his own hand, while he was the sitting president of the United States of America. It went well into the first year of his presidency, I don't know if that makes a difference in people's thoughts about the seriousness of the crime or not. Joyce, what do you think? So um, I'm on board with Barb's argument here. I think it's a serious crime. And I think it's really interesting. Maybe this is because of the sex, to Barb's point. People are are drawn away from viewing this in context of, of Trump's sort of just explosion of activity designed to win elections at any cost. You know, this is really the first instance where we see him trying to manipulate the results in an election. This happens on the eve of the election. Trump always seems to get some kind of special treatment, I think, because he proclaims so loudly that there's a witch hunt against him. Somehow that that has always insulated him and earned him this sort of, you know, the name of Teflon Don. 
This is a serious crime. This is an effort to undercut an election. It is also a violation of New York law. I think that we should really stop talking about this as the least serious of Trump's crimes and talk about how horrific it is that we have a former president who's I've lost count of the number of serious criminal investigations. I think it's at least four right now, maybe five. We'll be right back with more analysis after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, Smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. I keep seeing people bring up the John Edwards prosecution to make the point that this kind of conduct, you know, to hide something or to prevent something from coming out can be viewed as campaign activity. Uh, and the Justice Department made the weighty decision to bring a charge. But but it matters that that charge was unsuccessful. And there was an acquittal on one count, I believe, and a hung jury in other counts. And the Department of Justice did not find it to be serious enough or plausible enough path, or have a plausible enough path to conviction to try it again. Now, Ellie, you're in the business of retrying cases. <laughs> we don't, we don't give up. Uh, C.E.G. John Gotti Jr. For for those people out there that, who who may not have picked that up, that's shade at someone who had a hung jury one time. Yeah. So on the one hand, yeah, a charge was brought and it could be analogized, but it was a pretty big failure on the part of the Justice Department. Shouldn't that fact should that factor in here or not? 
I think you need to consider it. Um, and the John Edwards case was similar in that it involved payment of hush money and he was charged as a campaign finance violation. The problem with that case is the jury was not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the motivation there was campaign focused or electoral as opposed to avoiding personal hu humiliation for, the, for John Edwards and his family. There are important factual differences, however, including, and I think importantly, the fact that John Edwards's payoffs continued after the election, which do suggest that the real uh, the, the real motive there was not election. So, so in that respect, I think that the facts here are stronger. You know, it's really important to keep in mind, though, when we talk about did it swing the election and, and how wrong it was. Again, payment of hush money is is not lovely, um, but it's also not the crime here. The crime has to do with the booking of these, and this could explain also why. Michael Cohen gets charged, but not Donald Trump. First of all, Michael Cohen took a plea. He took a package plea. We've all been in that situation. You have someone who's ready to take a plea. You go, okay, you're going to be eating charges A, B, C, and D. It's not the same as charging a crime and having to duke it out and go to trial. Um, so th that that's number one. But the key question really is, can you directly tie Donald Trump to the way these payments were booked and logged inside the Trump organization? And that's as far as we can tell right now, that is largely dependent on the word of Michael Cohen. And I would add this. This is another evidentiary problem. We all remember Michael Cohen taped Donald Trump when this was happening, right? You remember this? This tape came out publicly. It's a quick conversation. And in that conversation, Michael Cohen is laying out to Donald Trump how they're going to do it. And Trump's sort of asking questions. At one point, he says something like, are we going to pay cash? And Michael Cohen says something like, no, 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 don't worry. Alan Weisselberg and I are going to handle how we put this together which if I'm arguing this case for the jury, to the jury for Donald Trump, I say right there, folks, there it is. Donald Trump is hands off. Michael Cohen says, don't you worry about how we're going to log this and book this. Me and Alan are going to do that. And again, the hush money payment, unseemly, not illegal. The prosecutors are going to have to tie Donald Trump to knowing the way that that payment was structured and booked beyond a reasonable doubt. But isn't it true um, that to get the felony here in all likelihood, if, yeah. the, if we are theorizing about this correctly, you're going to have to show, the government's going to have to show that the reason for the payment was either, I don't know what the jury instruction will be, but largely or yeah. exclusively or principally for purposes relating to winning the election. And doesn't Donald Trump here also at least have some defense that, you know, like John Edwards, though it was near in time to the election, I was trying to avoid personal embarrassment rather than trying to win an election. So that's part two of the potential crime here, which would elevate it to a felony. I think prosecutors will point to exactly that, pre to the timing. This affair happened 10 years before. The payoff happened right before the election. But I know what Trump's response is going to be to that. His lawyers have said it publicly. They're going to say, yeah, that's when this opportunist, Stormy Daniels, stepped forward because she knew that my client, Donald Trump, was at her mo at his most vulnerable. That's when it would hurt right. him most. The timing occurred because of her, not right. because of him. And the record is clear. She's the one who came forward demanding payment, I mean, years before this. So um, there's an interesting back and forth there. One of the other things we've been hearing about this is that um, the payment was made not as an expenditure for the purpose of influencing the campaign, but to protect Melania from embarrassment, to protect his wife and his family. Um, I have always been of the view that you can have multiple purposes for things. And so just because he may also have wanted to help protect Melania does not mean it negates the purpose of influencing an election. Do you agree with that proposition? Well, as I said, I don't know what the jury instruction would look like. Um, it'd be interesting for, for us, if and when we see an indictment, 
to actually look and see what we think in this kind of case a New York grand jury would be told about the the, the relative weight of that reason for making the payment that would qualify it as something that's a campaign contribution. Um, and in different areas of law and public corruption that you know many of us have uh, overseen cases relating to, um, it does not have to be the primary purpose or the only purpose. Um, you know, when you take money as a, an elected official to vote in a particular way, and we were worried in some cases that this would be a defense. You know, sometimes politicians will say, "No, I was voting. My, I was going to vote that way anyway. That's how I wanted to vote, and I got paid to vote the way I was otherwise going to vote." Suggesting somehow that because one of the reasons you voted a particular way was because that's where your heart was anyway, doesn't negate your culpability criminally for taking money to vote the way you were otherwise going to vote. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's my understanding as well. So when I hear some of uh, Trump's defenders saying, you know, it's an either or proposition and it was all about Melania, I think that's wrong as a matter of law. And I think it's designed to distract and create talking points for his supporters. And while it's not binding precedent, there there was a ruling in the Edwards case to that effect early on that said that you could have partial motives, right? And that if a part of your motive was to influence the election, that that was enough. So I think your reasoning is sound. I want to go through some of the challenges and tick them off so that we are previewing where the legal fights will be. As people have pointed out, the last payment or the last plausible time where this crime was was being committed uh, I think people generally agree was more than five years ago. So uh, on its face, beyond the statute of limitations, New York State has a provision that tolls the statute of limitations, pauses the statute of limitations for all those days on which a defendant was continuously out of New York. We know that Donald Trump was in the White House, came to New York very infrequently. In 2019, changed his residency uh, formally, uh, his permanent residency formally to Florida. Does everyone agree, yes or no, that the statute of limitations is not going to be a problem for the DA's uh, for the DA's case. I agree with that. There'll be some legal skirmishes over it. There's also this COVID provision that um, continues the statute of limitations. I I think that um, there are good enough prosecutors in the office that they've done the calculation. Yeah, I think Trump will complain about it. I think we'll have motions about it. You know, he's going to fight every possible legal theory he can. But at the end of the day, the statute seems pretty clear that the time gets told when a person lives out of the state. So I think it's going to be okay. Is there an alternative argument? I threw this out last week <laughs> without without the benefit of deep legal research. Is there an argument that because Donald Trump, when he was president, was by policy and precedent not indictable, that there's some equitable tolling of the statute of limitations by virtue of the fact that he was in the presidency? So I think that's an interesting argument. I was just going to say that as a sort of third fallback argument on the statute of limitations, because the real test is unavailability. Uh, a person we couldn't indict for some reason, although there is a sub sub question of does that policy against indicting a sitting president? We know it binds DOJ. Does it bind a county slash state prosecutor like Alvin Bragg? So that may be a third fallback for prosecutors. Can I ask a non-substantive question? And I'm directing this a little bit more to the MSNBC uh, panelists. What is the deal with Donald Trump's lawyers going on TV and, <laughs> and failing to make a decent argument? I mean, there are arguments to be made, and we've just been discussing them here. Can you, can you this is an unfair question maybe, what, what is going on with that? 
Yeah. You know, props to Ari Melber. His bookers do a great job. And, and they did it, frankly, throughout the Mueller investigation, too, where he'd get key witnesses from Trump's inner orbit to go on television and then say stuff that ended up in, in indictments in one of the cases. Um, it's astonishing that these folks continue to go on television. Yeah, and go on television and actually make confessions. Andrew Weissman pointed this out, <laughs> where he said... This was a plain extortion. And I don't know since when we've decided to start prosecuting extortion victims. Um, he's denied, vehemently denied, this affair. But he had to pay money because there was going to be uh, an allegation that was going to be publicly embarrassing to him, regardless of the campaign. So you're admitting the payment that you then booked as legal fees. I, I mean, it was not only did he come on and, and was, you know, incredibly, I thought, you know, unpersuasive, but I, I think he might have really harmed the client in this way. All's fair in love and war. Can we talk about something else that um, happened this week? And, and I wonder, going back to the beginning of this conversation, if anyone thinks this may be a reason for the postponement of the grand jury, we'll, we've all worked in the federal system. Ellie has worked in both the federal and state system, that state system being in New Jersey. And there are different grand jury rules. There's an unusual, at least for those familiar with the federal system, an unusual provision in New York law that allows somebody who is a target to ask for a witness to be called. And the Trump team requested uh, through the formal process that a lawyer named Robert Costello should go testify. Costello was someone who had been uh, you know, potentially a legal counselor to Michael Cohen. The point we're told of Robert Costello going in earlier this week was to undermine the credibility of Michael Cohen, which he himself has undermined um, himself on, on multiple occasions. Does anybody have a view on whether or not that was a, a good idea, a logical move, or if that moved the needle with the grand jury at all? It only makes sense if you think it prevents an indictment uh, from happening, because otherwise it means that the Trump team has given the prosecution early access to what one of their, presumably, what one of their witnesses will say and previewed it. So it doesn't seem to be, assuming that there ultimately is an indictment and we're correct, doesn't seem to have been a great strategic move. In my law school seminar at NYU this week, we spent um, an hour talking about this. I thought it was, it's a good lesson uh, relating to some of the topics we cover in the class. You know, how do prosecutors make charging decisions? What are appropriate considerations? And or, normally we say external considerations like the perception of politics or you know, whether or not there will be protests you know, what the political consequence might be are things you never think about and you're not supposed to care about. And some of that is being brought into question with respect to an extraordinary case that involves potentially the former president of the United States. And it's it's my understanding that one of the arguments Trump's lawyers made to Alvin Bragg and his team was a pure political argument. In other words, some version of this person that you don't like, this person that you don't want to be back in politics is going to be catapulted back into the presidency uh, out of sympathy and solidarity if you bring this ticky-tack charge against him. My question to you, which is a question I asked my class, is that an appropriate consideration? That and also the possible threat of public protest and violence, are either of those proper considerations one way or the other for Alvin Bragg? So I think the answer is straight up no. I think we go back to first principles as prosecutors here. All the cliches are true in this instance. You seek justice no matter what, without fear or favor. I don't think there's any, you cannot consider those factors, but I do want to sort of spin it the other way too. And, and like you, Preet, I'm friends with Alvin. I've known him for a long time. I worked side by side with him at the Southern District of New York, and I've publicly defended him many times. But I, but I wonder what people think of this. What if Donald Trump had flamed out? 
What if everything happened the same and all of his personal finances and overinflation and underinflation and hush money payments were the same? But what if in the Republican primary in 2016, he got 4% of the vote and he quit a couple states in and we never heard from him again? Do we really honestly, in our heart of hearts, believe that the New York State AG and Manhattan DA would be doing exactly what they're doing now? Or do we believe yeah. that it would be I, I'll tell you that I think there's an argument to be made, and the president for that is John Edwards. John Edwards was charged after he had flamed out, after he was a nobody, right? After he had no real prospect of becoming president again, which is the hypothetical you're giving with respect to Donald Trump. I'm not saying that's the right thing, but but that's, that's literally what happened. That's the one difference between John Edwards and Donald Trump. John Edwards was on the way out. Donald Trump is perhaps on the way back in. But would local prosecute, would state and local prosecutors be pouring through the business records, looking for financial crimes, looking for tax crimes, which have been charged <laughs> against Alan Weiss? I mean, a guy's in prison because of this. Would it be the exact same? Do we really think Alvin Bragg would be digging through and Letitia James would be digging through with the intensity and profile that they're doing? In my heart of heart, the fact that a different set of prosecutors did it with John Edwards, who was a, a high profile person, a vice presidential person, a vice presidential candidate a long time ago, I don't think that gives us necessarily the same result here. Yeah, Ellie, just I, I would respond by saying, you know, number one, I think you have to go after this case without fear or favor, as you said. You can't let, you know, unrest in the streets stop you. But the, your question about whether I think they would go after Donald Trump, I think it's 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 a little bit hard to create that scenario because, number one, we might not have received the information, you know, because of the way things shook out with Michael Cohen and the other investigation. They may never have known about any of it. So it may not have uh, the issue may not have come across their desk. But then when it does come across your desk, I think one of the reasons for the vigor of the investigation is because you know Donald Trump is going to fight like an animal. And so you have to make sure <laughs> that your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted you know, times a million before you're going to do this because he's going to you know, put posts on Truth Social and say all kinds of outrageous things. So I do think it probably adds to your selection of who you choose to staff that case um, the amount of briefings that Alvin Bragg is getting to make sure that he thinks that this case is uh, being handled as uh, professionally and soundly as possible. So I do think it's different, but I don't think that that necessarily means it's inappropriate. Yeah, and I agree with all that, Barbara. I just, it's the come across his desk part that gives me a little bit of pause. Uh, this did not sort of just flow through his desk in the normal course of business, right? Bill Barr tried to say that when he was asked, why did you step in on Roger Stone and Michael Flynn only? And he said, well, those were the cases that happened in the natural flow to come across my desk. I mean, obviously there were cases initiated because he's Donald Trump, because he's hated, because he's despised in New York and Manhattan. I mean, I can't, I, I can't just uh, accept that this would have happened if Donald Trump was politically popular here in New York, if Donald Trump was a Democrat, I just don't think either of those two prosecutors would have dug in to his personal finances and his pre-presidential conduct with anywhere near the ferocity that they have. Can I say one thing in response to that? And it's a generalized observation in the wake of people saying that, that Alvin Bragg is being political, is on a witch hunt, he wants to do anything possible to take down this person who's still in the political mix. And what's, what's a little bit odd to me about that argument is here's Alvin Bragg, like him or not, who has for a year taken withering criticism from two former prosecutors in his office, Mark Pomerantz and to a lesser extent, Carrie Dunn, uh, one of them in book length fashion for complaining that Alvin Bragg was, was too deferential 
and too scared, arguably, and too timid in going after someone, Donald Trump, against whom at least he, you know, some people thought there was a triable and winnable case. And it's what I find it a little bit odd for people. Uh, I'm not saying this is you, Ellie, but for no, people, this is including a good point. yeah, on, on the Republican side, saying like this this crazy man is out of control. For a year, he's been accused of of being not aggressive enough and not going after Donald Trump when there was a lot of public pressure to do so and internal pressure to do so. So you have external and internal pressure. Charged Donald Trump. He had the backing of you know some very very notable people, including Mark Pomerantz, and he didn't do it. And he's doing it in this other case. So you, we can criticize the other case once we see what it looks like, or we can praise the case and and the merits of it once we see what it is. But it's just it's bizarre to me the attacks on Alvin Bragg for being overly aggressive and engaging in a witch hunt when you have that other history as well. I think that's a great point. I think the counter argument to that is that Alvin Bragg got spooked, that he took this massive wave of anger and hatred, including from his almost entirely Democratic base here in Manhattan, caught him by surprise. And then this thing comes back to life in a public way two or three weeks before Mark Pomerantz's bogus, ridiculous book, but, you know, book that was on 60 Minutes and Matt Allen got a ton of attention comes out. And and the, the, I don't know which is the case. We, we are openly speculating here about a person who we both deeply respect. But Preet, I think that, that, that the argument you make um, has some power and resonance as well. You know, Ellie, to the timeline, though, it seems unlikely to me that this prosecution just got kicked into gear when we became aware of it publicly. I suspect the wheels were set in motion earlier maybe before they knew about um, Mark's book because he did not pre-clear it like he was supposed to through the office. I'm just not sure. You know, I, I typically think that there's no such thing as coincidence in law enforcement. However, here it might be a coincidence. I agree with Joyce. You know, I, all of you have been involved in matters where there's been some press speculation about what's happening in your office. And in some ways you chuckle about, they have no idea what's going on in here. And, and yet it doesn't stop them from having very strong opinions about things. Uh, there are other times you say, oh my gosh, how do they, how do they know? Can they, uh, you know, they have listening devices in here and some of it's guesswork. So I, I agree that with Joyce's view that we don't know when this started. I, I, I'd be surprised if it started just because Mark Pomerantz wrote a book. Um, I think he has always wanted to be the, the hero of his own story. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, a prosecutor uh, is entitled to bring charges at any time before the statute of limitations expire. And it may be, it seems most likely to me that Alvin Bragg simply thought, I want more evidence that you are satisfied with uh, evidence X and I want evidence plus, uh, X plus. I want more before I feel like we can prove this case to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I think we should describe for folks, uh, lay folks in particular, what this is going to look like. So if in the coming days, Alvin Bragg announces the indictment, unseals an indictment against Donald Trump on whatever charges, how does that work? Does he get arrested? Does he uh, come in for photographs? Is it a mugshot? Does the Secret Service come with him? This is, you know, an area that is that is not explored. But you, you know, the the bunch of us have lots of experience uh, in how an arrest takes place. And by the way, arrest is different from being charged. I'll point out as an initial matter, and then want to hear you folks explain it further. Donald Trump is not getting arrested. In other words, no one's going to Mar-a-Lago and asking him to come out with his hands up and putting cuffs on him and pushing him into a squad car, he will be allowed to voluntarily surrender in some fashion, that's the phrase that we use, because he's not a risk of flight, or you know, in this matter at least, not a danger to the community. And other people may have a different view of that writ large. And it'll be done in a way that's accommodating and somewhat deferential. Is that right? I think that's dead on the money. But that's not necessarily more deferential because he's uh, a president. I Maybe a little with the Secret Service part, but... In most nonviolent cases, you've, if you've got somebody in a white-collar case, you typically don't go in and arrest them with guns blazing unless you have reason to believe that they might flee, that they might be dangerous, that they might destroy evidence. And so I can think of many occasions where a defendant was allowed to self-surrender. It's safer for agents not to execute an arrest. You save a lot of resources, and most of the time, a lawyer will bring his client in the next day for an arraignment. Um, I think the added wrinkle here, of course, is the presence of Secret Service agents. And I imagine that there will be uh, cooperation, that they want things to be done you know, safely and efficiently and probably out of the public eye. You know, they don't want a perp walk scene. So they'll probably make arrangements to let them you know, drive in uh, through through the back door so that there's not the big, you know, walk up the gaggle of press up the steps of the courthouse as he walks in. Unless, of course, Trump wants that, which, um, you know, I think all all signs indicate he that he's sort of relishing this. Yeah, this opportunity. Right. Fundraising videotape, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I had an interesting conversation with a Secret Service agent because I, I sort of had a question that I think a lot of people have. What's the Secret Service's role here? And um, this agent shared with me that not 
thinking about Trump, but in other situations where a protectee could have been arrested, they sort of gamed out what that would look like, and a Secret Service agent would accompany that person through the booking process. And so add to the list of unprecedented sort of activity that we're about to see an armed Secret Service agent going through the booking process, protecting the former president of the United States, while he, I think, you know, very briefly falls within the control of a police agency, at least briefly initially. And all of it really adds up to, to quite a spectacle. Oh, think how that might play out, Trace. Imagine this. You're the brand new Secret Service agent. You're all excited about your new job. And they tell you your assignment. You're going to spend three to five years um, as the cellmate of your protectee. <laughs> I mean, people this keep is- asking that question. It's crazy (laughs) stuff, right? Because what do you do? How do you put an armed person into a facility? You know, even good Secret Service agents fall asleep from time to time. I mean, it it really, we're sort of laughing, but in many ways, this opens up so many questions on so many fronts down the road. Well, here's another question. Here we are in the middle of March, 2023. People have some sense from watching the news and paying attention to trials and court happenings. That just because you charge someone, they don't get a trial right away. And roughly speaking, a case like this in the ordinary course, or this is not an ordinary case, might take, you know, 16, 18 months to come to trial. And if I'm doing the math correctly, that puts us almost smack right before or at the time of the 2024 presidential election. Isn't that a mess? Yeah. And I I think before we get there, it's quite possible that we'll have additional indictments also. And, uh, Trump will have to think about defending himself in, you know, possibly three or even four different jurisdictions, all while running for president. It, it really and we should point out, by the way, none of that, because I get this question a lot too, and we should make sure that people understand this, and this will make some people not happy, but it's the rule for everyone, Democrat or Republican or independent. None of these indictments prevents Donald Trump from running for the presidency and winning the presidency, correct? <laughs> Absolutely, Absolutely correct. Yep. The presidency from prison, right? I mean, add to the crazy. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Members of Cafe Insider can head over to the Cafe Insider feed to listen to part two of our conversation. We discuss House GOP calls on Alvin Bragg to testify before Congress, whether Trump can get a fair trial in Manhattan, the timing of a possible trial, and whether it runs into the election of 2024 and more. If you're not yet a member, consider joining. You can get your first month for just $1. Head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, 
Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.